Hello and welcome. On behalf of CME Outfitters, I would like to thank you for joining us for this CME snack title, Facilitating Definitive Diagnosis, Identification, and Measurement of AD Pathophysiology. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Lilly. I am Eric Tangelos, Professor of Medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and I'll be your moderator for today's activity. I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Henrik Zetterberg, who will now go ahead and introduce himself. Yes, thank you very much, Eric. I am Henrik Zetterberg, a professor of neurochemistry at the University of Gothenburg and University College London. And I'm also a visiting professor at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Uh, and I'm very happy to be here with you today. So much of this information that we're going to spend time with today is from the biomarker uh, specific presentations that were presented at the 2023 Alzheimer's Association International Conference just this past July. Our goal is to contextualize some of that information to empower learners to interpret the biomarker-based investigations to identify patients with AD pathology in both clinical and research settings. So to start us off, Dr. Zetterberg, can you review with us where we were about this time last year with the Alzheimer's Association appropriate use recommendations for blood-based biomarkers in Alzheimer's disease? Yes, um, you will see if you read those um, appropriate use recommendations, they are quite careful. Uh, but now with the discussions during the AIC in, in Amsterdam this year, uh, there were many more bold statements being made. So a lot of progress has happened this past year, and I think there is much more confidence in the blood-based biomarkers now, and that we will see them being in clinical use much more broadly sooner than we thought, or at least sooner than I thought uh, originally. And a lot of that uh, pressure is well-deserved because now we have the uh, Alzheimer's targeted interventions, the therapies that are out there. And so we clinicians are looking for an opportunity to make a diagnosis at least for a part of the Alzheimer's population that would be benefited from these targeted therapies. Mm. Uh, and I think now the, this um, July meeting, what also happened a little bit outside or in a pre-meeting was that a lot of different um, phosphorylated tau assays were compared head to head in a collaborative study funded by Alzheimer's Association. And then it turns out that we now actually have many good plasma phosphotau markers that reflect amyloid pathology in the brain and that they are possible to run on clinical chemistry analyzers by, by different companies. And to me, as a clinical chemist, my background is, of course, both in research, where we developed some of these tests, but also as a clinical chemist working in a clinical lab here in Gothenburg. And it's, from that perspective, it's very beneficial if we have many vendors making these types of assays with good quality, because then we don't rely on one single company. And if we look into the a uh, cardiac marker field, for example, it, it, it really took off when there were many uh, clinical chemistry uh, and biotech companies that, that made good assays for the, those types of markers. And this is the situation in general in clinical chemistry to, to a large extent. And that's why I was so pleased this summer to see these results of high-performing uh, performing Alzheimer's biomarkers in, in blood. Yeah, and one of the things that uh, uh, that we're really excited about is uh, we've now got some larger scale studies, clinical studies that we're going to get into as we 
we continue to discuss uh, today's findings. But let's take a look at the individual performance of the different blood-based biomarkers in Alzheimer's disease. And we have a slide to talk about this, too, if you'd like. Give us the overview of the performance of the most promising biomarkers. Mm, uh, one could start. It, it's, I find it relatively easy to start out from the ATN concept, although that is also a little bit in modification now. But if we think about Alzheimer's disease being defined by amyloid pathology, we need good amyloid pathology biomarkers. And the one that we have studied uh, the most throughout the years is uh, the ratio of 42 amino acid long beta amyloid over 40 amino acid long beta amyloid. And that works really well in cerebrospinal fluid. And now with some aspect-based assays, but also uh, immune assays, a few of which have been uh, optimized also and run on clinical chemistry analyzers, we can see that the reduction of plasma, a beta 42-40 ratio, also reflects amyloid pathology in the brain, much like the CSF a beta 42-40 ratio. The problem which we as a field um, are struggling with still is that the fold change between amyloid positive and negative people in this ratio in plasma compared with CSF is much smaller. So if the ratio drops uh, by 50% in CSF with a clear bimodal distribution of amyloid positive and negative people in plasma, that bimodal distribution exists, but the drop is only 10%. Uh, around 10%, and that is irrespective of which assay you use. But it means that if you want to do this in clinical laboratory practice, you have to keep your assays under very stringent control. If you have the slightest drift in your assay, a lot of people will move across this threshold for positivity. Uh, so uh, it, that's why it's a little bit of a daunting assay to run in clinical chemistry labs, especially if we think about rolling it out in many, many labs to serve the many people that are in need of this test. So that is the current situation regarding the A-beta test in plasma. Fortunately, we now know that phosphorylated tau levels in plasma, they increase in response to onset of amyloid pathology. And that might sound a bit confusing because now I, I'm saying that the phosphatau markers in blood reflect amyloid rather than tau. But the earliest changes are really like that. So. Uh, neurons that are exposed to amyloid pathology will react to that pathology by phosphorylating and secreting tau. And then you get this type of phosphotau increase, which is two to five-fold in amyloid-positive individuals. Not a few percentages, but many-fold uh, increased. And the overlap is smaller than with amyloid um, uh, ratio, for example. So, so that's also, uh, th that starts to look like a promising um, amyloid marker, I would say, with clinical, um, well, utility in a clinical laboratory setting. And um, many of us are, are familiar now with looking at the FTG PET and um, some MRI information as well. How's that fit together? Yeah, I think they still are really valuable um, modalities. So I, I basically think that we will see the situation that the blood tests are done early on in an, an investigation of a patient who complains about his or her memory. Um, so I think we should look at them uh, not as, I, I wouldn't call them screening tools, because I, I still think if we think about WHO criteria for screening, th these markers 
and Alzheimer's disease as such is not um, mature enough for, for doing population-based screening or so. But if you see a patient with memory complaints, it could be subjective or mild uh, cognitive impairment that is objectifiable, um, possible to be objectified, then you could early on take this type of blood test and then get the results back, uh, for example, for a phosphatal form or if you prefer to still use an A-beta 4240 ratio depending on what you have access to. Then you can look at these results, uh, discuss with your patient, discuss uh, what it, if this looks like it could be Alzheimer's or not. And then, of course, uh, if you work in a primary care setting, you could uh, consider if you are to refer this patient for uh, being evaluated for potential start of, of, um, of a treatment. That's the big new thing, of course, that, that this starts to look like it could become a clinical reality. Yeah, so I, I, for our, uh, our listeners, I think what this does for us is it takes a portion of the patients we currently call Alzheimer's disease, and it very likely confirms that the portion of patients that we're looking, that a portion of the patients that we're looking at has amyloid positivity and therefore might be appropriate candidates for interventional therapy. But there's still a lot of patients out there that we call Alzheimer's disease that may not have this particular pathology in this high a concentration to be that specific with our diagnosis. I agree completely. And this also uh, points towards the need for further research because, and I also think that we are perhaps now also helping uh, together as a field, we are now identifying people who, who might actually have other pathologies that contribute to Alzheimer's like phenotypes. I'm thinking about CDP43, this discussion on late, this new concept that might actually be a little bit more common than we have taught before. So, but I, I still see this, of, of course, it could indicate that the, the field is not mature enough to start to use these biomarkers, but I think it is, if we keep this in mind, that, that we can't, people who complain about their memory and who turn out to be negative on the Alzheimer biomarkers, they will still need some help and we need to continue to study them and, and, and see what, um, what it might be that they, that they have. Uh, and of course, it's very important to look into depression and other causes of, of cognitive impairment that we all should look for also already now, of course, when we are evaluating our patients. Uh, one, one big thing that was discussed during the AIC meeting was cut points. And we do not have, uh, these methods have not been standardized. So most likely we will see that eventually kits are being um, uh, 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 labs will start to use kits with cut points that will be a bit assay dependent. And it looks like in the discussions that happened during AIC that uh, many clinicians and laboratory physicians are starting to think that we should perhaps not just have a reference limit, one cut point, perhaps we should have a gray zone and then we have people are clearly abnormal and clearly normal. And on the basis of that, it might be so that we don't even have to verify the amyloid pathology by PET or CSF, but in clear-cut cases with a clinical picture that fits, one could make a biomarker-supported diagnosis with careful clinical evaluation and a blood test. Um, some clinicians still think this is too early and that one would need to confirm 
amyloid positivity by a reference standard test, which would be CSFA beta 42 fort ratio or amyloid PET. But FTG PET and other measures that you talked about, MRI, of course, will in this setting also be extremely important. So, and the MRI will be essential if you start with treating patients for Alzheimer's pathology by these anti-amyloid antibodies because you want to keep track of um, uh, microbleeds and white matter changes and also the, the, the potential side effect of ARIA, the amyloid-related imaging abnormalities. We're going to circle back to some of the data that came out of Sweden in a couple minutes, but I, again, we've started to really expand our understanding of the blood-based biomarkers, and so I want you to spend a couple of minutes with the additional jargon that's out there on neurofilament light yeah. and gliofibrillary acidic proteins. So talk about those two for just a second. Yes. So we have talked about amyloid and tau, one could say, and phosphorylated tau is to a large extent an amyloid marker. But as the disease gets worse, the phosphotau levels increases. And actually in the dementia phase of Alzheimer's disease, phosphotau levels in blood correlate with tau PET also. So it, it, phosphotau is a little bit of both amyloid and tau then. But then we have these additional markers that you mentioned. Neurofilament light is a market that we have known about since the 1980s in cerebrospinal fluid. And it was developed originally as a marker for uh, large caliber myelinated axons and injury to those axons. That was the original concept. So uh, early, the earlier studies were on diseases like ALS, multiple sclerosis, brain trauma. But eventually it turned out that if you look across neurodegenerative dementias, almost all have increased neurofilament light levels in the CSF, except for pure Parkinson's disease. Apparently, pure Parkinson's disease does, is not enough sort of to elevate um, neurofilament light. But if there are, it's a typical uh, neurodegener uh, Parkinsonism with additional neurodegeneration, then neurofilament light levels will signal that. So neurofilament light has turned out then to nowadays be considered a general marker of neuroaxonal injury. And during the past 10 years, we have learned how to measure this protein in blood uh, with um, more sensitive assays than regular ELISA, which was the original uh, cerebrospinal fluid test. So now we have access to, to, to this marker as a neurodegeneration marker in blood. Alzheimer's disease patients typically have slightly increased levels, but if you compare with frontotemporal dementia and ALS, those diseases have much higher NFL levels than Alzheimer's disease. Um, but still, it seems like this marker pinpoints neuroaxonal degeneration. And longitudinal studies show that if you're amyloid positive by biomarkers and have increased neurofilament light, then you typically even if you are at the baseline uh, working in a similar way cognitively, you typically have, but these are group level data, a more rapid disease progression. So it's sort of a more intense neurodegeneration. So that, that's basically, the, the problem now with neurofilament light is that, and I, all of you who listen now will realize it immediately, but it's not disease specific, which means that an older person who might have some cerebrovascular disease with perhaps a little smaller microinfarctions or white matter disease, um, um, perhaps a brain trauma or a mild uh, concussion or so, all this could make neurofilament light being a bit, it's a bit noisy sort of. So yep. it's not specific to disease process. 
The trick is to make sure that our clinicians don't get caught off guard by the new jargon. And there is plenty of neurofilament light floating around right now. Yeah, and there is another caveat that I really would like to mention. Not a caveat. It, it makes sense, but it's important to know. And that is also that peripheral nerves are full of neurofilament. So if you have type 2 diabetes with peripheral, peripheral neuropathy, or if you have um, another, for example, inflammatory neuropathy or something like that, then you, your neurofilament light levels will also be a bit elevated. Most NFL in the blood seems to be CNS derived, but there is neurofilament light in uh, peripheral nerves as well. So, yes. So, I mean, again, the clinician has to be cautious about what they're looking for or more cautious just knowing that there's something called neurofilament light that's out there. Same thing for GFAP. You want to spend just a couple minutes on that? Yep. Uh, I, I would also just like to mention a couple of uh, small things, again, uh, in, in addition to neurofilament light. Kidney disease brings up neurofilament light levels. We don't know why, but that's the case. Uh, there is also a, 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 an inverse relationship between body mass, body mass index. So if you're a big person, you actually have slightly lower neurofilament light levels. It's a, a, and we don't know that. Uh, we, we don't know. It doesn't seem to affect reference limit and, limits and cut points that much. But one should uh, yeah, perhaps remember this a little bit and, and, uh, and be a bit cautious when interpreting the results. Um, GFAP is a general marker of um, um, astrocytes and to some extent uh, microglia. And when I say general, I mean that GFAP is made by astrocytes. If astrocytes get activated, irrespective of underlying cause, they uh, express and release more GFAP. Uh, so GFAP is then glial fibrillary acidic protein. Uh, it's a classical marker. Uh, mouse researchers use that to stain astrocytes in the mouse brain, for example, and it also works well in neuropathology of human brains. So high GFAP levels are uh, a little bit uh, unspecific, but the interesting thing that we don't understand fully is that amyloid pathology is a major inducer of GFAP expression and release. So if we do a study on uh, patients who have mild cognitive impairment, um, especially the amnestic variant, and then subgroup according to whether or not they have amyloid, those with amyloid are the ones with the highest GFAP levels. There are slight increases in GFAP in frontotemporal dementia and in vascular dementia, and a little bit also in, in ALS, not much in Parkinsonian disorders, but perhaps a little bit. So GFAP has uh, turned out to be a little bit of an amyloid marker as well. So now it looks like this, that when amyloid plaques form in the brain and spread across the brain parenchyma, you get tau phosphorylation and GFAP elevation. So a neuronal and an astrocytic reaction to this, uh, to this pathology. And that translates into blood. So a typical uh, person with uh, amyloid pathology will have increased phosphatau levels and uh, increased GFAP levels. Uh, these uh, new biomarkers, they also have the potential to um, uh, measure the effect of these novel treatments. We have seen now in many of the anti-amyloid um, drug trials that uh, phosphatau levels in blood uh, go down in response to the treatment. They don't seem to normalize completely, but early on during um, 
during the trial. It's actually apparent already after three months, then phosphatidyl levels go down in the active arm of these trials, of these, um, uh, the active arm of, with the active drug, I should say, compared with placebo. Uh, so phosphatidyl, could you be used to monitor the effect of the anti-amyloid drugs, the positive effect, sort of? And then we have the potential of neurofilament light as a safety marker. Uh, so if you have aria that really starts to injure neurons, then you can get a, an increase in neurofilament light. There are still only case reports discussed on this, so I, c I can't uh, give you any citation on this, but I, I've, I and others have encouraged the drug companies to look into the neurofilament light changes and subdivide the patients according to whether or not they got a mild, moderate or severe aria. And my prediction there would be that those with um, severe aria are the ones that actually get an increase in neurofilament light in the early phase of the trial. So hopefully uh, these blood biomarkers could be used both to monitor the positive and uh, the positive effects of the drugs and also potentially the side effects together with MRI, of course. Thank you very much. That's excellent. Uh, that's an excellent piece of information. And it puts into clinical context the neurofibrillant filament light. It makes it more interesting to us that have to deal with ARIA and thinking about it and when to think about it and who to be concerned about. Well, these biomarkers that we've been talking about, you've studied them plenty and you've published on them plenty. Now I want to take our audience to the AAIC meeting and go over the Swedish BioFinder primary case study information that you all presented. Yes, so Swedish Biofinder is a study that is led by Oskar Hansson in uh, Malmölund. He's a professor of neurology there. And uh, together with his mentor, Leonard Minton, a big cohort was built many years ago, and it has grown enormously. And now it is a deeply phenotyped um, cohort with uh, amyloid PET and tau PET, and also uh, not just um, uh, cognitive diseases, but also an arm with Parkinsonian disorders. So it's a very, very valuable cohort if one would like to look at biomarker performance and uh, also um, try to look at how these biomarkers relate to other neurodegenerative diseases. And during the past few years, uh, Oscar has also added a primary care study in order to provide a biomaterial through which one could evaluate potential use of these blood tests in primary care and then evaluate uh, the included um, uh, patients with the standard or reference tests uh, that are more advanced to see if we could uh, skip some of the amyloid PET, tau PET and, and um, uh, more advanced imaging um, uh, methods that are not that accessible and quite expensive uh, in some individuals with clear biomarker results uh, in blood. And that is starting to emerge now. And uh, Sebastian Palmqvist and Oskar Hansson both presented data on performance of plasma phosphotau 217. Uh, and that is a phosphotau form that is a phosphorylated amino acid 217. And it turns out to be the biomarker that has the most clear association with Alzheimer pathological brain changes. And it really looks like one could, uh, with good um, uh, accuracy, use a, a two-decision-limit uh, approach uh, in regards to the plasma phosphotau levels in order to classify people as amyloid-positive, amyloid-negative, or 
as being in a gray zone with uh, biomarker results that are close to the cut point where one then clinically, if the patient has such a gray zone result, either uh, send the patient for amyloid PET or CSF to get a better um, uh, view on whether or not there is pathology or simply repeat the sampling six to 12 months later. Uh, this um, gray zone approach to um, people with no, no clear-cut biomarker results in their blood is something that we start to see more and more in clinical chemistry in general. The problem is that, that just sending them for a CSF for an amyloid PET might not be completely, there will be some people who simply have gray zone pathology and that the biomarker accurately reflects that. And in medicine then, uh, 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 well, calling the patient back for a follow-up examination could be a better way of dealing with this than just sending them for another test because people who are in the gray zone might be on the move towards a more positive or, or return to more normal biomarker levels. So uh, we will need to handle these gray zone patients with care and not overstate the findings there. Simply tell the patients that we are not certain what this biomarker result reflects and that we have the option of doing additional examinations or simply follow uh, up um, the patient and see where this takes us. Yeah, you know, I don't think our clinicians really have a lot of trouble on the gray zone concept. Patients do, patients and families do, but the clinicians live with it in all kinds of disease states. And in fact, if you want to consider um, neuropsychological testing as a biomarker, and, and you can, I mean, we get reports back all the time that, well, we think this is MCI, but we're not sure bring the patient back in another six months. And we do. I mean, that's just the way it is. I like that a lot too. I mean, it's really general uh, general clinical medicine. That's, that's exactly uh, how. I, and I would also like, we discussed it a bit during AIC, but I would like to some extent to de-dramatize the use of these new biomarkers because sometimes we, we hear we, sometimes I also call them diagnostic markers, but the diagnosis is never made by the biomarker. The diagnosis is made by the clinician putting all the information together, which is so exciting and such a wonderful clinical challenge also. And then the biomarker, uh, the blood biomarker result, the new blood biomarkers will be one additional tool in the toolbox. Yeah. And we will see patients who have uh, spurious results that are due to an interference or something else. So when we start to use these biomarkers in a more broader scale, if we think about thousands of patients that will get analyzed and tens of thousands of patients, we will see interferences. We will also see some strange results that might be mutations. I mean, it could be an amino acid substitution in a amyloid test or that we actually find some uh, mutations in the tau gene that also makes the marker unmeasurable or that the half-life of the marker is changed and then they get abnormally high levels. We have uh, heterophilic antibodies. There are lots of things that could um, make, make, it, um, make the biomarker result not accurate. And this is again the case in general clinical chemistry practice. We should be on the lookout. If results do not fit or are strange, then we should use other assays and we should talk to each other by this, uh, about this 
and also not overstate any findings to the patient, but uh, simply admit when we are uncertain and then uh, use. Uh, I must say it's so nice to be in a field where we also have CSF tests, amyloid PET, tau PET, neuropsychology. We, we actually have the possibility of phenotyping our patients really, really well and get, um, and, and together I think one could in many cases become quite certain on the diagnosis uh, on the basis of not too expensive examinations. But right. then it might be that we need to, if we start a patient on a treatment on the basis of um, a new blood test and the clinical picture and no imaging abnormalities on MRI, then I think um, we should evaluate uh, the effect carefully. And if, it, if um, uh, the, the, the effect is not good enough, then one has to reevaluate the diagnosis and perhaps uh, do an amyloid PET eventually if one is still uncertain. Well, at AAIC, you also prevent, presented from your lab some of these confounding variables. Um, you talked about meals. You talked about uh, comorbidities. You've already mentioned BMI. Mm. But you, you want to go over uh, some of that information from uh, one of the slides that was presented? Yep. Um, I could um, state that there are a couple of things that we, where we should be a little bit careful now when we start to use this in clinical practice. And, uh, some of the phosphatal markers change in response to intake of a standardized meal in a in a setting um, uh, which of course was a study setting and the patients uh, included in that study they were slightly overweight and they had some other inclusion criteria that might not make them representing the whole general population but at the moment I would recommend a morning sample that is taken fast fasting that is sort of to be a little bit careful then there are some markers that seem to be less um, susceptible to this. So it might be that that recommendation will change in the future. But in the beginning, I think we should be a little bit careful with this. Um, kidney disease affects uh, some of the markers, uh, most um, clearly neurofilament light. Uh, so if you have a patient with clear kidney disease, then one should uh, be careful with interpreting NFL uh, data. Phosphatau is not that much um, affected by this. So in general, one could say that there are, um, if we think about comorbidities, they will not destroy the biomarker value. But acute diseases, of course, could have an, a major impact. For example, brain trauma, um, active uh, cardiovascular disease, where perhaps there has been some fluctuations in blood pressure that could also uh, potentially influence the biomarkers. But that's not a clinical situation where you do a cognitive evaluation of a patient. So I think one should do these evaluations when the patient is in a steady state and in a, in a good um, in a good place in life and not with acute other diseases that might actually influence in sometimes unknown ways these biomarkers. And there is some, um, we will also see with neurofilament light, for example, that there will be a need for age-specific reference limits. That is already, we have done this in clinical chemistry in Sweden for three years now. So, And that's really clear. Most of the laboratories doing this in clinical practice, then you have to have age-specific norms. But apart from this, it's, it's um, uh, the biomarkers look really good, actually. And again, I put on my general clinical chemistry hat and compare with other markers that we use in clinical practice. And this is not a big problem, I would say. Okay. Um, I mentioned in my talk uh, that there are a couple of um, uh, drugs that actually really influence the pathophysiology, the, the, um, the, the biomarker dynamics a lot. 
and for example, there is uh, one of the antihypertensive drugs that we also give preferentially to people with heart failure. It's uh, 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 a it's a combination therapy with a neprilysin inhibitor. That drug really increases plasma beta levels quite a lot. And it also, for one reason or another, increases A beta 40 more than 42. So you get a reduction in your A beta 42 40 ratio. And that all patients that get this drug look like they switch from being amyloid negative to amyloid positive. But that is because neprilysin is the major amyloid turn turnover in the blood. Uh, so uh, neprilysin is an enzyme that degrades amyloid. And when you inhibit neprilysin, then you get this type of increase. We don't think that translates into anything bad for the brain, but it really destroys the biomarker. And then there are a couple of kinase inhibitors, for example, one that is used against chronic myeloid um, leukemia that, that uh, brings down phosphatau levels. So this is all very exciting. So, but these are the two classes of drugs that we have seen that has a, a clear effect on the biomarker without having a, most likely this is an effect which is which sort of impacts the biomarker performance more than any pathophysiological process. All right. So with all of this information, this thrust that has come forward, and it's an exciting thrust, despite the caveats, despite our understanding of drugs that might interfere at AAIC, the um, a, a draft was proposed uh, for revised clinical criteria for Alzheimer's disease. Not at all surprising. So we've gone from last year to this year, and it's a big change with regard to what's occurred with the blood-based biomarkers. You want to talk about the new draft criteria? Uh, this is work in progress, so uh, uh, Clifford Jack is updating together with a big um, team of experts uh, the criteria, and during AIC he presented them, and uh, the, the criteria, uh, the draft paper was also posted online. People are, uh, had the possibility of going in. I think it's still open for comments. You can go in and comment on the criteria. Um, and the biggest change, as you pointed out, Eric, is that now... Uh, we move from having these as research criteria to actually propose them as clinical criteria. Uh, I, and I must say, uh, perhaps I'm a bit biased here, but I really think the time is ripe. Uh, it's still, and you can see it from the presentation, the comments on the presentation and the comments on the draft, that this is, of course, something which, which leads to a lot of discussion. But the major take-home is that uh, the markers in blood are taken to represent Alzheimer's brain changes in a way which is good enough to provide clinically meaningful information, and that one should clinically be able to consider amyloid and tau pathology in the brain by doing a, a, a blood-based test. And that will, of course, make it much easier for the patients and also for um, clinicians who are prescribing uh, or considering to prescribe these drugs. Um, there is also in the proposed uh, draft the possibility of making an Alzheimer diagnosis preclinically. Um, uh, but then it's, of course, not the diagnosis for a clinical syndrome. But And it's more conceptual, I would say, than clinical, because in the clinics we won't see these people if we don't go out and actively look for them. But we could make incidental findings, of course, in people if we take a, an Alzheimer test in a depressed patient. We might get information that this patient also likely has 
Alzheimer's pathology. And then you have to put on the clinical hat again and discuss this a little bit uh, and see if it's not like this patient then automatically would get an Alzheimer's diagnosis, but the depression might need to be treated, of course, first. But the idea is that the brain changes represent a disease. And then the clinical expression is more like an illness. That's how it's put in the in the in the criteria. Uh, I know this is a bit. Uh, I, I like it, but one has to be careful uh, and also not uh, again not give away diagnosis in an in, in a careless manner to people who are not having symptoms from them yet. I should also remember that if you have biomarker evidence of Alzheimer's pathology, it's very diff- difficult to know when the symptoms from such changes will appear. There are some studies indicating that if you take a big cohort of 70-year-old people and look at those who are biomarker positive, the positive predictive value for Alzheimer's dementia, if you follow them over 10 years, is 96%. So it's, a, it, it's not bad. It's, I mean, and this translates into the blood tests, at least the best performing blood tests. But it still means that uh, during those 10 years, a lot of things can happen in life and uh, people might, uh, might get problems that, are, that, are make, that make the Alzheimer changes completely irrelevant. And uh, one might even, of course, die before the, you get the symptoms. So uh, one has to be really careful with this and not. So I would like to, to again, de-dramatize the use and talk. When you do a blood test in a patient, and I, I would like before testing to talk to the patient and explain what this uh, test might tell, and then also to tell that this test uh, tells you uh, about brain changes, but the way uh, symptoms might appear and how the disease might develop, and so it is completely unknown. You can't make individual uh, prognostication on the basis of a blood biomarker result, they are, it's simply not good enough. But then that we have the possibility of actually now treating the, the pathology if, if um, there are clinical indications for starting such a treatment and no other explanation for the symptoms. So it's, um, uh, I, I think it's a big uh, advancement and I, I would like to see that we could use the blood tests much like gastroenterologists and hepatologists use the liver tests. I think we should use um, these blood tests for Alzheimer's brain changes and neuro, neuro, neurodegeneration uh, as uh, the tools to tell about what's going on, uh, what might be going on in the brain, and then uh, help making the diagnosis more accurate, basically. You know, I think that the revised criteria are really a, a wonderful reflection of all of the advances that have been made. I mean, since 2016, when we had ATN, the uh, amyloid, the tau, and the neuropathologic changes, we've now essentially added N, which is the injury uh, or degeneration of the neurophil. We've added the V to understand the vascular changes that are occurring, and we've added the S for the alpha-synuclein. So, you know, the tent is getting larger. It's encompassing more and more as we go forward. And then when we have the uh, Cliff Jack sine wave description now with these additions on the revised clinical criteria, we've got a lot of opportunity to include the coexisting pathology. And, uh, and I think that's what you've been hinting at all along now and the cautions that you've presented, that the disease may be multiple things all at once. Mm-hmm. 
You want to finish up with a discussion on that? Yeah, it's. I think it's especially if you look into people who are a little bit older, then uh, if you speak to the neuropathologist, they often describe a mix of pathologists and they have a problem with telling uh, what might be the major contributor to the symptoms the patient had before he or she died. Um, there is one biomarker we are lacking and where I know that many colleagues are working hard to get better biomarks and that is for TDP43. So uh, now we have, as you said, A for amyloid, T for tau, N for neurodegeneration, neuroaxonal injury, inflammation, uh, GFAP is to some extent an inflammation marker but there are also other ones and then the, the vascular changes and also um, synuclein. With alpha-synuclein, we now have the possibility of doing a test called RT-Quick, which is very much like the test that uh, many of uh, you who listen might use for prion disease when you ever encounter a patient with suspected prion disease. Then, uh, before we measured injury markers, and if they were super high and there were some EEG evidence and MRI evidence of Kreutzfeldt, then one could make a diagnosis prior to death. But now you can actually take a lumbar CSF sample. Uh, you might also be able to detect it in uh, tear fluid and some other fluids of the body and spike in recombinant prion protein and tell if there are seeds of misfolded prion. The very same assay type now exists for alpha-synuclein. And it has been replicated now in many different laboratories. So we can qualitatively determine if a patient has or does not have levy body pathology, which is actually a quite good step um, forward. And then we should add in TDP43 also. And my hope is that we in the future will be able to molecularly phenotype the patients even more and perhaps guide um, the patients and uh, the clinical colleagues in regards to which treatment or combination of treatment might be the best. Uh, so if you have an amyloid pure um, uh, disease with very little comorbidity, of course the hope is that we will see in the clinical trial samples that are still around that perhaps those are the ones who respond the best to the anti-amyloid treatments. And those who are amyloid positive but with a lot of alpha-synuclein and TDP43 co-pathology or vascular changes, perhaps they will be the ones who respond a little bit less well. And we should be able to dissect this better in order to personalize medicine um, uh, uh, or, or drug choices in this, uh, in this type of, uh, in, in, among the neurodegenerative dementias as well. And there are lots of exciting uh, drug developments also for alpha-synuclein and uh, to some extent for lysosomal dysfunction and TDP43 pathology and so also. So, it's, so hopefully this will, uh, this thinking will help with improving both the diagnostics and the treatments of the patients. Yep, we're all getting more and more familiar with precision medicine. And again, we have to welcome the additional biomarkers and we have to understand the coexisting uh, pathophysiology that's going on. And, and I think we can do that. And I think you've helped us with a very nice understanding today of the different biomarkers that have emerged, are going to find their way into clinical practice, and they're going to find their way into clinical practice because of clinical labs like yours that not only do the basic understanding, but then actually apply that information to a large population to see if it actually plays out. So that's wonderful. Any final comments before we wind down? 
No, uh, well, a final comment might be that I, I think this is going to happen quickly now. So I think that in the next uh, few years, uh, many of us will start to use at least a plasma phosphotaumarker or something like that as, and get familiar with it. And then we should learn together. We should talk to each other when we get strange results and we should um, try to, to, uh, to work together with the patients and with the drug developers and, and so to, to make optimal clinical use now of the new drugs and of the new diagnostic modalities uh, for these different types of biomarkers. So it has been an absolute pleasure working with you today. And I want to go over our SMART goals that we hope to have achieved. They include the specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and timely pieces to this puzzle. And so I think we've gone ahead and explained the diagnostic and or prognostic significance of the emerging AD biomarker investigations to patients with or at risk for AD. You've done a great job helping us with that. We have uh, gone ahead and tried to incorporate blood-based biomarkers into AD-related screening, the differential diagnosis, the staging, and the therapeutic decision-making according to the revised guidelines as they become available. And as you have pointed out, these are undergoing rapid uh, changes right now with um, acceptability and introduction into the clinical practice and then we hope to have helped our clinicians interpret AD biomarker investigations within the clinical context of each patient to ensure appropriate considerations for potentially confounding factors. And once again, your own data has done a wonderful job of helping us understand these confounding variables and not to put us off the, the diagnostic pathway, but to help us understand better what's going on with the patients that we're taking care of. So I'm going to give you the final word if you'd like it. Thank you very much, Eric. Thanks for those kind words. And also, uh, I must say, I think this is a very exciting uh, field right now. So when I uh, talk to uh, junior colleagues and also medical students, I, I try to encourage them to, to um, uh, think about this field as their future career, I, I really think we are moving towards disease notification now. It really feels like that, and I'm very happy for that. Thank you all, and take care.